am so glad to be here this morning. Good morning. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Um, as I was growing up, I knew about Easter. Um, my parents had me at church a lot. But as a child, I really was not so excited about uh, the... Uh, I was really excited about my Easter basket. I was not so excited about those hard shoes I had to put on and uh, those scratchy clothes. <laughs> and so I just to prove to you that I used to dress up. Um, I brought a few pictures of my past. Here's one. Look at that. Look at that little fun size snack. <laughs> okay, so it didn't end with this year. Here's another one. My mom dressed me up actually every Sunday. Uh, my birthday happened to land on Easter Sunday this year, uh, that, that year there. But just so that you know, this was a part of my life. Um, I brought one. I'm a little bit older here. Look at the next one. All right, now, hey, 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 thank you to that professional, professional Mr. Olin Mills, whoever that is, but I put on my Easter best, and that, that, that little gentleman has some drip. That's what we say about him. Man, so that's what my mom did to me every Sunday, um, and... You know, to this day, I still do not like dressing up. Do not like that for myself. Obviously, I don't. Uh, and probably if you could see Cole today, he would probably be in shorts, more than likely. Um, so, but I did grow in my understanding of how special this day was and how significant that it is. Um, and if I'm to be honest, even as an adult, I am still learning about the, the mysteries, the wonderful mysteries of what we call Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, we understand that today, uh, people from all different kinds of backgrounds are gathering for celebration all over the world. Today, probably more than others, there are people um, just from all over the globe celebrating something that took place 2,000 years ago. And we're celebrating really what we talked about last week, and that is that Jesus was, is our Passover lamb, our Passover sacrifice. We talked about that last week. We were celebrating and are celebrating today that the body of Jesus was broken for us, that he shed his blood for us, and we're celebrating something that the disciple John saw firsthand. He witnessed this first 2,000 years ago in an ancient city of Jerusalem. I want to read something to you. Here's a verse on the screen. Uh, this is what John himself witnessed care, uh, about Jesus carrying the cross by himself. That was Jesus. He went to the place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. All right, let's keep moving forward here. We've got uh, this is what we're actually celebrating at this very moment. We're celebrating this thing called Resurrection Sunday. But we're also celebrating this verse, this next verse that you may not realize we're celebrating, but we're celebrating the very words of Jesus. Before he died, he gave us a, a, one of many places, a hint about all of this. And this may have been one of the first passages you memorized, for this is how God the world. He gave, this. these are the words of Jesus, and he's speaking of himself. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. From the very beginning, God's plan has always been for Jesus to die. That's been the plan. The Romans did not take his life. The Pharisees did not take the life of Jesus. Jesus actually gave his life up willingly. Now, we can't leave the story of Jesus there. That's not where it ends because that's not enough because the story of Jesus did not end at the cross. In fact, the reason that you're here today, the reason that I'm here today, what we're celebrating today is the fact that the story did not end at the cross. Our entire faith, what we believe, hinges on this single event. If the crucifixion of Jesus um, had been the end, if that was the end of everything, then there is no story for us to tell. But there's no, uh, if it ends at the cross, there's no case for anyone to further or for anyone to continue to tell. His followers, 
those following Jesus, had the cross been the end, they all would have simply gone back to their careers, back to their jobs, um, if that was the end. But that was not the end. Because without this single event that we're talking about, there is nothing for us to follow. Just a memory, perhaps, if it all ends at the cross, a memory of a man who uh, should have been lost to the pages of history for us. We should never have really even heard of him. But the reality is that's not what happened. In fact, you're being here today in Malvern, Cole in Stuttgart today with the church in, uh, in Stuttgart, with us here in Malvern. The, uh, we're here because the evidence that the cross is not the end. There's more to it. That's not how the story ends. That's not game over. All of us know that these men did not go back to their lives as normal. Saul did leave his comfy, pharisaical life. He did leave that behind, and all of them left their old lives behind, and it was to their great detriment that they did. But why? Why spread the story of a man? Why take the story of, of a nobody from Galilee and take that story halfway around the world, especially considering that the ones who carried the story, all, almost every one of them, met a very horrible death. Why would they do that? Well, it's because something did happen. Something did take place. And here's where we read about that. But, the very, uh, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, uh, taking the spices that they had prepared. We're going to continue reading through this. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Let's keep going. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. All right, so we know he's gone. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared uh, to them clothed in dazzling robes. And here's what happens. The women were terrified, and they bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Wow. Now, for the next few moments, here's what I want you to do. I want you just to consider this question. Why did these men and women risk it all? Why did they take such risk? Why did they risk it all? So let's watch this and let's think about that question. So why did they risk it all? They risk it all because those two men said, he isn't here. He's risen from the dead. And they reminded them, they said, he said, remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the son of man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day. And they remembered that he had said this. And what people around the globe today are celebrating is the fact that Jesus died. No, that's not the only thing we're celebrating. It's not that he was an amazing teacher. It's not that he performed miraculous signs and did amazing things. Today, we celebrate the fact that the tomb that Jesus was laid in is empty. The tomb is empty. And this year at Stuttgart Harvest Church and the church in Malvern, we are on a mission, we have said from the beginning of the year, for us to get to know Jesus better. That's what we want to do. We want to know him better. We want to love him better. We want to understand him better. And in order to do that, we said we need to understand the things he has said about himself. Now, this is where this uh, we get this long name for this series that we started last week, and it's called the Nothing But the Bread Bakery. That's the name of this series, because over and over in the New Covenant, we find Jesus using this idea of bread. And he uses that as a way to describe himself. And so this morning, I just kind of want to open the door of the bakery and I want to invite you inside. So together, let's see what's in the bread case for today as we attempt to understand Jesus just a little bit better. Are you ready? All right, let's go into the bakery together.
Now, we've talked about this before, and I think it bears repeating that everywhere Jesus went, he drew a crowd. Now, Taylor Swift draws a crowd, and they call the people who follow Taylor Swift what? Do you know? Swifties, exactly right. And so today we're going to say this morning that these folks who were following Jesus, maybe they were Christies. I don't know, very possibly. But Jesus drew a crowd absolutely everywhere he went. And you know what? If I'm to be honest, I probably would have been there as well. I would have been in that crowd too. Now, John tells us that these people had heard about Jesus. They heard about the miracles he performed, and they heard about the healings, uh, how sick people were being healed. So naturally, they would want to see, they would want to get a closer look on this guy and see what he is all about, what, what, is, what is this guy all about, and maybe, just maybe, he has something for me. What is all of this about? Now, one on this particular occasion that we're going to be looking at today, it, it happened not long before the Passover season, um, and uh, it happened in a, in a town called Capernaum, and his close followers that were with Jesus, they get into a boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. When they hit the other side, uh, something unique happens. The crowd, well, not unique, it happened over and over, the crowd finds Jesus, even on the other side, they begin to gather. Um, and so John tells us um, uh, that Jesus, he, he saw all of these people gathering. And I love to think about this, Jesus kind of just giving his followers a hard time, uh, his immediate disciples. And he leans over and he sees these thousands of people gathering and he asks Philip, one of his disciples question, and here's what he says. He says to Philip, hey, where can we buy some bread to feed all of these people? And now John, who's writing this account, this part of the biography, John is writing this years and years and years after it happened. So I imagine they laughed about this scenario many, many times. And John happens to know, so he includes this in the story, why Jesus was asking him this. In verse 6, John says that Jesus was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus already had a plan. He's just kind of giving Philip a hard time. And Philip replies to the question, though. Here's what Philip says. Philip says, listen, uh, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed all these people. It wouldn't work. Now, I'm going to spare you the suspense, just in case you don't know. Jesus does, in fact, feed all of this multitude of people. John tells us that there's about 5,000 people, and that doesn't include the number of women and children, so there were many, many thousands more. And he does all of that feeding with a handful of food. That's all. And he feeds them all. Now, with this miracle, something interesting happens. The crowd is so excited about this, the thousands, that they work themselves up into kind of like a fervor and they begin to try to install Jesus as their king, as the king of Israel. Now, that's not exactly how God was going to go about all of this. That was certainly not his timing, not his plan in this moment. So Jesus, seeing what's happening, he slips away, all right? He slips away. And as he slips away, um, just so that things don't get into a bigger fervor. Now, night falls. The disciples still haven't seen Jesus again. So the disciples get in the boat and they go back across the Sea of Galilee again to the other side uh, near Capernaum. And on the way, it's nighttime, on the way, something pretty amazing happens. They do run into Jesus again. I'll let you go read that story and look it up. It's pretty phenomenal. You need to read that. But John tells us they all make it to the other side. The next morning... The crowd finds Jesus again, as they probably expected they would, and the crowd begins asking questions. So they're like, hey, Rabbi, where'd you go? Um, listen, can we get some more of that bread? 
Rabbi, can, you know, listen, we're kind of hungry again. Can we, you know, uh, listen, we, we've seen you do some amazing things. What do we need to do? We would like to do some of those things too. Can you teach us how? Um, and, and listen, by the way, if you would just give us a bigger sign, uh, a bigger miracle, a bigger show, then perhaps we'll be able to believe in you. Now, as we look at the context of what happened the day before with that giant meal coming from that handful of food, it kind of sounds like what the people are really saying to Jesus is, listen, um, so we have all these crises gathered back around, and they're kind of wanting some more fish and chips is what it sounds like. And so they're like, listen, Jesus, we're kind of hungry. What is on the miracle menu? for today. That's what we want. Now, Jesus begins to explain to them. He begins to explain to them, yes, God does have bread, and it's going to come down from heaven, and this bread is going to give you life. Now, Jesus, we know, is talking about himself, all right? But they're just not getting it. They're not picking up what Jesus is putting down. All right, they're not getting it because the crowd responds this way. Okay, sir, they said, give us that bread. The bread you're talking about, that, give us that bread then. They just don't get it. They're like, Jesus, we want that bread you're talking about. Jesus, we, we want that every day. Would you give us that bread that you're talking about every day? See, Jesus, this is how food works. We need it every day. So if you could give us that bread, um, and if you give us that bread, listen, it sounds like that we will be filled and we will be satisfied, and you could do that for us every day. To which Jesus replied, I am, I am the bread of life. Now, as we're trying to understand Jesus as a church more and more, Jesus clearly here is comparing himself to something that is necessary for us every single day. Food, bread. Now, Jesus continues. He goes on. He says, whoever comes to me will never, and I've highlighted whoever comes to me, but I, I really, in this moment, I, I think I want you to focus on this word, never. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me, yeah, that's important, but listen what happens, will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying this goes beyond just simply eating a, a, a loaf of bread. This goes beyond just mere physical needs and food. Jesus never misses an opportunity to teach. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, listen, folks, and again, focus with me on this word, never. It's as if he's saying, yes, you know you have to eat every day. I know you have to eat. You cannot live without food. You have to eat. That is exactly the way God has designed you. You have to eat every day. But with God's design, there is more than just living for today. And don't we know that's true? We know that's true. There's more than just today. There's more than what we see today. In fact, there's more than what we experienced yesterday. And there's more than what we expect tomorrow. Because life goes even further than our tomorrow goes. There's another living part of us. Something inside of every single one of us. And I like to look back at the creation story where God breathed his breath into man. There's something about the breath of God inside of every living person. You hear us refer to that as a soul. 
That's so hard to describe what a soul is. It's kind of, fellas, it's kind of that part of you that's looking through your eyes right now. That's your soul. It's that part of you where there's something going on, but you don't quite understand what it is. But once it is created, human life is eternal. And that part of you that God has created in every single one of us is eternal. And that part of us that's eternal also requires something to live, some kind of food. Your physical body, your physical body requires bread, requires, well, mine really does, <laughs> requires bread, requires some kind of food to live. You know that. And Jesus is saying something very similar. This eternal part of you also requires something. And Jesus says it requires, this eternal part requires, Jesus says it requires me. I am that bread. Now, Jesus is redirecting their understanding. And we, and you, and I, and them, all of us, we can't live eternally the way God has designed and planned and wants you to live without this different type of bread. And Jesus says it's the bread of life. And what Jesus is saying to the crowds is this, that he is that bread. He is that life. He is the bread of life. In the words of Jesus himself, who is this bread for? Here's what he says. He says, whoever comes, whoever believes. So if we want to live eternally the way that God has designed and created us to live, if we want to live eternally that way, the way he desires, then Jesus, that bread of life, is required to live the way Jesus wants us to live eternally. Otherwise, we will live eternally separated from God, and those are two very different accommodations. Now, I love this account and this biography snapshot of Jesus, because Jesus in this moment is inviting these multitudes, thousands of people, regardless of their background, regardless of their hangups and their habits and their hurts in life, regardless of any addictions they have, he invites them to come to him, to believe in him, and to take the bread, his life that he's offering. He's inviting them to do that. And, and this is not just like a mental agreement where we're like, oh, yes, that makes sense. I, I could agree with that, Jesus. I can agree with some facts about you, Jesus. I agree with facts of what the new covenant says. No, no, no. This is Jesus offering uh, a, an invitation to the crowd. And, and by extension, I believe he's offering us that same invitation. And the invitation is to begin relying on to begin clinging to Jesus and Jesus alone. Clinging to him in the same way that we cling to food to meet our physical needs. And as I read through this biography, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I mean, listen, of course, why wouldn't I want that? Yeah, of course. And, and why wouldn't they want that? But this is amazing to me. Apparently, in spite of all the signs that Jesus gave them, all the miracles, remember, he just fed that 5,000, 10, 15, however, however many thousand it was, he just fed them. They've seen the miracles. They, they even got in such a fervor, fervor, they wanted to make him king in that moment. I mean, listen, they, they saw these things. But in spite of all of that, some of them refused to believe. 
And listen, Jesus knows what's coming next in this biography. We're not going to cover it today or even in this series, but he knows what's coming next. In fact, what's coming pretty soon is going to be so offensive that most of the people following him, the Christies, most of them leave and never return. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. He understands kind of in this crowd that he is with, who's a Christy and who's really following him. And Jesus turns and he addresses some group or all, we don't know, but some, and he says this, but you, and it's not an individual, it's a grouping, but you haven't believed in me, even though you've seen me. Some did believe, we know this, some were there who believed, but some did not. Now, as we continue, we're not going to cut things off right here. We're going to keep reading through this um, because Jesus is getting ready to describe one of the most debated topics in all of Christian theology. And we're going to lovingly, me here and Colin Stuttgart today, we're going to lovingly attempt to make some sense out of what follows in this. And we're just going to take a stand today. All right, we're going to take a stand. But we're not going to be on the side of any famous theologian. I think we're going to choose today to just kind of take a stand on team Jesus (laughs) as we look at this. All right, here we go. So remember, Jesus just made the comparison about him being bread um, and that they have a need for him, uh, that whoever comes to him, whoever believes in him will get this life. And then he looks at them and says, but some of you don't believe. And then he follows it with this statement. Jesus says, however, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I'll never reject them. I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, Jesus says, that I should not lose even one of these that he has given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. And that's fancy talk for this eternal life that God has, that soul he's created in you that lives forever. If you're connected to Jesus, he's going to come back and snatch you up, okay? And so he says in then verse 40, for it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, as I look at this controversial passage, and you may be saying, Harley, I don't see a controversy in there. Trust me, it's controversy. And as we look at that, I want you to notice, though, let's focus on what Jesus focuses upon, okay? Let's focus on what he focuses on. And I look and I see three very specific actions. See, he's describing uh, this moment that we move from eternal separation from God and something happens and we move into an eternal relationship with God. And we're looking at that moment. Okay, that's the moment we're looking at. Of all the actions that we see in this passage, there's a very small part that actually deals with you and me. So let's read this again. I'm going to do this phrase by phrase. Are you ready? Phrase by phrase. Um, Let's see here. Jesus starts off with saying, however, he says, those the Father has given me will come to me. There's where we begin. Those the Father 
has given me. God has a very clear action here. God the Father has a very specific action. The Father appears to be doing some giving. He's involved in this. The Father is going to do some giving. This, I believe we can say with all assuredness, that's the Father's job. That's His work to do. And I'm going to say that because that's His work, that's not my work. And because that's His work and His job, his action, his responsibility, that is not my responsibility. He hasn't asked me my opinion on that. I haven't voted myself in as the fourth member of the Trinity. <laughs> he didn't ask me, hey, Harley, what do you think about me giving some folks to Jesus? He didn't ask me my opinion. He didn't ask me, hey, Harley, do you know how I did that? What's your thoughts? He didn't ask me. He didn't... He doesn't he didn't care what I think about it. That's his business. In fact, he never anywhere in there that I can find explains to me how he does it. He just does it. He doesn't explain it to me. He hadn't asked my advice. He hadn't asked my input. He didn't even ask me to explain to you why he does it. I don't have to jump back and try to defend God's glory to make you understand why he does. God's glory is fine. He's got it all wrapped up. He's got it all under control. That's his business, not mine. I don't even have to worry about it. He doesn't try to explain it to me. That's his. But then he says, oh, Jesus, I'm Jesus, by the way. He says, I've got something that's going on here too. And here's what Jesus says, and I will never reject them. He says, for I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those that he's given me, but that I should raise them up on the last day. So here we have the second action, Jesus. And Jesus says, what, whomever, whatever soul lands in my hands, I hold on to them and I don't let go. And Jesus didn't ask me what I think about that. And Jesus didn't ask me to explain how he does that or why he does that. He didn't ask anything of me about that because that's his business. That's his job. That's his responsibility. It's like, Harley, don't worry. Whatever lands in my hand, I don't let go. Don't worry about it. You don't have to protect my glory. You don't have to go on my defense and describe and explain and, and, and tell people how this works. That's the work of Jesus. He's got it under control. He didn't consult me. He didn't ask me. And he certainly didn't explain it to me. He just said, this is my responsibility and it's going to happen. I love that. And then, then, he begins to talk about us. He says in verse 40, for it is my father's will that all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life. He said, I will raise them up on the last day. Finally, we get to the part that concerns me and concerns you. All who see his son and believe in him. It looks to me as though in this, what shouldn't be, but is controversial passage. 
I have been given one and only one responsibility to worry about, to think about, to understand the whys behind, and it all has to do with me. I've been given one responsibility, one response, one action that involves me, that I have to understand, I have to be able to explain. It is me. And just in case this is not clear, this is how Jesus started the whole thing. This is how it all began. When Jesus said, so who who does this involve? Here it is. He says, whoever comes to me. He says, whoever believes in me. According to Jesus, I have one single action one response to worry about. I have one single thing to do, and it is this, whether I come to the Son, believe in the Son, abide in the Son, cling to the Son. And here's my encouragement to you. I hope that as you read through these scriptures on your own time, and I hope you will, I hope you see the tension in this, because while there should be no controversy, there should be great tension in this statement that Jesus makes. And I hope you see the tension, and my desire is that you will leave the tension right there in the words of Jesus, just like he did. Salvation is never achieved apart from that drawing power of God. Never. And salvation is never completed without the willingness of a human to hear and learn from God. And it seems as though if we latch on to one of those things, this one or this one, and we hang tightly to one of those, that ultimately that leaves our understanding of God and this Christian life unbalanced, unbiblical, a bad theology. So rather than resolving the tension that people have fought over for centuries, maybe the best resolution is to simply learn to live with the tension that Jesus threw out there. Listen to this quote from a man named John MacArthur. And I want to break it down as we go, okay? Uh, Michael is going to help me do it. The incomprehensible, at least to the human mind, the incomprehensible interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So I've put it here on the screen for you. It is incomprehensible to our human minds, this divine sovereignty and this human responsibility. That's what Jesus just was talking about in that passage. And those two things sharing this screen, our brains can't wrap our minds around that. Divine sovereignty, meaning The father calls some, and over here, meaning, oh, it's man who responds. Our minds can't comprehend that. This is what John MacArthur says. And so he gives this more of a definition. In other words, here is where this tension, this is where the tension is. Over here, only those given to the son by the father will come to him. 
And over here, the tension is, yet all who are thirsty may come. And anyone who wishes may take the water of life without cost. Michael, pause right there for me. John MacArthur is saying this is incomprehensible. Our minds cannot make that work together. Our minds say we either have to grab onto this or we have to come over here and grab onto this. We can't make that make sense to the human mind because they both say different things. Here's how John MacArthur finishes this quote. Though they seem impossible to harmonize, there is no conflict between those two truths in the infinite mind of God. Our minds cannot understand or describe this. And that's why I'm so thankful that Jesus said, this is God's work. You don't even have to worry about this. That is God's work. And Jesus said, and I have a part of it because I'm going to, I'm going to keep you and I'm going to hold you and I'm never going to let you go. And he said, but you do have a work to do. This is your responsibility. That is your work. That is your concern. There is no need for us to argue over the work of God. Do you know why? Because it's the work of God. It's not the work of Harley. It's not the understanding of Harley. It's not for Harley to make sense of. It's not for Harley to explain. Because frankly, Jesus already said it. We can't understand it. (laughs) We can't understand God's mind. incomprehensible, MacArthur says, to the human mind. I agree. No need to argue about that. I'm never going to completely understand that. But it certainly seems to me that Jesus is saying, God works, that's his business. But you have a business too. You have a responsibility too. And only you can do what you are responsible to do. The only thing I can be concerned about is what he has given me to be concerned about. We have been given one action, one response, one thing to worry about, and here it is. Are you hungry for Jesus? Are you thirsty for Jesus. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And if the answer is yes, then that hunger must cause you to come to, to believe in, rely on, cling to, abide in, partake of the bread of life. Because if we don't, Jesus will respond to you. And if I don't, but I have, Jesus would have responded to me, just like he did to those folks on the seashore that day, off the Sea of Galilee. And he would respond and say, but you haven't believed in me. And here's where we begin to wrap it up this morning. I simply say, students, students in the room, are you hungry for Jesus? Have you come to the bread of life? Are you relying on Jesus?
Junior staffers, look at me. Question. Don't answer out loud. Have you come to the bread of life? Are you clinging to Jesus? Parents. Have you come to the bread of life? Is your family seeing you cling to the life of Jesus for your life? Grandparents. Have you come to the bread of life? Are you leaving a legacy of believing in, relying on Jesus for life? Young adults, are you clinging to Jesus? Or are you buying into the idea, I've got plenty of time, I'll deal with that later. And finally, adults. Who do you say Jesus is? What have you declared for your life? See, the way I see this is pretty simple because I'm just, honestly, I'm a simple guy. Jesus either died on the cross as he said that he would do, and he rose again as he said that he would do before he did it, or he didn't. There's just no middle ground, really, in following Jesus. There's just either he is God and Savior, and, and that's who he is for you, the bread of life, if or he is then either a crazy Galilean carpenter who just kind of stirred up a movement, made some people mad, and because of it, he got killed as a result. But yet somehow, some way, the message of Jesus, his followers, they went out and they changed the world because they saw him with their own eyes and they touched him and they sat down and ate with him meals after he walked out of the tomb. And I think part of the evidence of that is that now 2,000 some years later, Cole over in Stuttgart today and us right here in Malvern, Arkansas, here we are. Here we are. And my question as we end is, have you responded? My question is, the one thing that Jesus gave us to be concerned about, to worry about, to wonder why about and how about, and that is your, your response to Jesus. And if your response today is, for the very first time, if you are truly coming to the bread of life, to Jesus, if you are saying yes to Jesus, that might sound something like this. I want, I'm not going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes. I just want you to understand, if you are coming to Jesus, here's what it looks like in the new covenant. This is what it sounds like, and then it looks like a, li a life that follows after, pursues, chases after Jesus. But here's what we are saying with our life. Jesus, I need you. And with our life, we are saying, Jesus, you now own me. I need you. You now own me. And we're saying, Jesus, this life physically, and this soul that you created that's eternal, this life is yours. And if that's what you're saying this morning, I plead with you. Let us know on your connection card 
that little piece of paper that's in the worship pack that's near you, let us know. On the back side of that card, it says there's a place where today I'm making Jesus the boss of my life. Here's what that means. Jesus, you're my boss. You own me. You own this. You bought it. You own it. You bought it at the cross. You walked out of the tomb to make it, to make it so. You own it. If you're making him the boss of your life, students, junior staffers, adults, parents, grandparents, if you're making him the boss of your life today, would you let us know? Because we're not going to hound you. We're not going to chase, chase you down. We're just simply going to send you some information to get you going on this journey of chasing after Jesus. Would you let us know? We have one job. Will you or will you not come to Jesus? Have you or have you not come to Jesus? Because truly, that's the only thing that will ever, ever satisfy the hunger of our human soul. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful. I am so very grateful that you didn't give up on me. Thank you. And God, I pray that this morning that we have as best as humanly possible communicated the wonders of salvation. And God, that you've only called us to understand one part of that, and that is our response to you. And God, I pray that we will respond to you, Jesus, with a resounding yes. Yes. Jesus, this life that you have given me, I give it back to you. It's yours. It belongs to you. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.